Discussion over dinner. This is our home. I came to listen to you, to talk with you. Discussion over dinner is sponsored and underwritten by State Street Community Church and the Pack Center. I am glad that you're here regardless. Welcome to our fourth discussion over dinner. And we are so glad that you're here. Uh, I hope the lasagna was good. Um, yes. Uh, a, a couple uh, people to thank before we uh, move on to our panel. I want to thank Joel Crane for making the lasagna. He slaved away over this. Way to go, Joel. And uh, Pastor Becky, who also helped. And yes, uh, Gwen Hollinger set up your tables today. She did a great job. Uh, Jason Clements, who's running our sound and our tech in the back. Thank you, Jason. Along with Grace Crane, thank you, Grace, who's running our video. Grace is interning with us right now for our discussion over dinner and helping us get all this stuff planned for you. Um, also, uh, Kelly Tanger, one of our board members who helps with content development here. So thank you so much, Kelly. Ellen and Molly Cooper, who Ellen is over there uh, serving breadsticks like, you know, a, a good uh, Fazoli's person. And... Um, Yes, uh, and, uh, well, does Olive Garden bring them around, though, like that? I think it's Fazoli's, because Fazoli's, Fazoli's can be kind of protective about their breadsticks. It's like, you know what, I'm going to eat that breadstick, one breadstick you just left on that little piece of paper before you walk away. Leave me two or three, okay? Um, we're going to have a great night tonight, and if you're streaming with us live, we invite you to text in to us um, as well from wherever you're at. We have a great panel. We're going to be talking about criminal justice issues here in Laporte. And, and the purpose of these events are, I know you can watch the news or read the news, and uh, when we talk about federal or even sometimes state issues, it can kind of bog your mind a little bit about how we can kind of help fix that or how, how to be informed about that. But when we kind of break it down into a local level and how things are impacting our neighbors and our, our streets, then we can feel like we have a sense of control or a sense of understanding that we can be a part of solutions and help. Um, I'm glad here today we've got um, our rep, uh, Jim Prussels, here. I'm glad that you're here, Jim, uh, that you care enough to be here because this is what this is about, people from Laporte coming together, breaking bread together, and talking about what we see in our known neighborhoods. So thank you so much for being here. And I am going to uh, introduce our panel real quick. She was elected judge of LaPorte County Superior Court number four in November 2014 after serving seven years as a magistrate. She's a member of the Board of Managers of the Indiana Judges Association. She was instrumental in helping set up LaPorte County's problem-solving court, of which she still leads. She's a member of the National Association of Drug Court Professionals and a graduate of Indiana's Graduate Program for Judges in the Indiana Judicial College. She's worked in private practice and practice and spent time with the Legal Services Program of Northern Indiana, 
with a practice focused on issues affecting older adults. She's received the distinctive recognition honor for outstanding achievement in the field of justice from the LaPorte County Drug-Free Partnership. Finally, most importantly, she's also an adjunct professor at the University of Notre Dame Law School. Go Irish. Please welcome Judge Greta Friedman. He's a lifelong resident of LaPorte and has been with the LaPorte County Sheriff's Office since 2008. He graduated from the Indiana Law Enforcement Ca Academy in 2009 and has been with the Sheriff's Office ever since. He's worked as a jail officer, a patrol officer, and detective. He was promoted to the rank of sergeant in April 2016 and currently holds the role as a shift supervisor with the patrol division. He serves as the manager of the field training program, team leader of the emergency response team, firearms instructor, and member of the honor guard. Please welcome Sergeant Adam Hannon. He's an associate attorney at Friedman Associates and practices in the area of criminal defense, employment law, and immigration law. He has served as judicial clerk for LaPorte County Judge William Bachland and is a clerk for the Office of the LaPorte County Prosecuting Attorney. He was born in Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. He's a member of the Indiana State Bar Association, LaPorte County Bar Association, and a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Please welcome Nelson Picardo. Hi guys, how are you? You doing okay? Let's test your microphones, see if they work. Testing, testing, hello. All right, testing. welcome. Okay, so um, I'm gonna ask you some questions first. I feel like I'm way back here. Let me pull up a little bit. I feel like I'm too far away. Um, so I'm gonna ask you questions for a couple minutes. We're gonna invite people to text in. Um, they'll text into the iPad and we'll just talk about what's kind of, what they're seeing and what they wanna know about. Uh, I know all of you, some of you better than others, but uh, I trust you. I think you all do fantastic jobs at what you do, and so I'm honored that you're here because I think, I think you can teach us something and we can learn so much from what you guys are doing in your, in your job. Now, Nelson, I'm gonna start with you a little bit. I noticed you brought your <laughs> Indianapolis Bar Association most commonly. You, you're really making me feel confident here. Um, I don't, I don't want to get stumped with anything. <laughs> this I isn't Stump the Lawyer, Nelson. <laughs> hey, I come prepared. <laughs> it's like when uh, people as a pastor ask me, you know, it says in Levit Leviticus 4-5 that, you know what it says, right? I'm like, yeah, exactly. I have the whole Bible memorized. All right. Um, as someone not from this community, um, when did you move here? I moved to Valparaiso in 2010. But in 2012, I was probably spending five to six days out of the week in LaPorte County. Okay. So as someone that's not a native LaPortean, like the three of us in this panel are, what is your impression of the state of law in LaPorte County? What are you seeing? The impression of the state of law in LaPorte County, I would say it's very similar to other places. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I, I noticed right when I started uh, – clerking in Superior Court 4 is the amount of uh, driving while suspended and OWI cases. I know that's a lot of what those that court focused on, those misdemeanor type of cases, but uh, just the, that amount of, uh, and, and, the, and the people that I was seeing, mm -hmm. um, a lot of minorities that were coming in through that area, but that was kind of first impressions of, of clerking in that area, and now as an attorney, you know, 
I'm a little bit more invested and involved in this area. Uh, one of the one of the things that I, I routinely see and I deal with is uh, children in need of services cases and termination of parental rights. And a lot of times, a lot of the issues that are associated with those type of cases is um, the lack of, of being able to find safe and stable housing, um, the lack of being able to find a secure job where they can provide for their families. So usually one of those things is really affecting a family, and I think that's key in a lot of uh, criminal justice issues. Not being able to provide for your family, not having a place to live, obviously leads to some major issues with the law. And so that first impressions, that's kind of a lot of what I yeah. see and, and, and deal now, with. Um, I've yet to be arrested. I still have time. Um, but let's say uh, Sergeant Hannon arrests me. What is the process? Because some people I don't think know how the process even works. I get arrested. H how, how do I get into your care? What, what, what does that process look like? Well, I think he might be able to answer this question better than I can. But when I start dealing with it is at the point of arraignment when the criminal defendant comes into court and has you know, read his rights, uh, read why, what he's charged with, uh, unless they ab approach a private, defend, a, a, a private attorney uh, before all of that happens. And then we could talk about, well, what was it that ha actually happened? Uh, what, are the, what, is, what is that person expecting going to court if that person has bonded out, if there's a bond set, if there's a warrant out? Uh, if, if you've been arrested and um, you have the opportunity, obviously, to have a hearing, in front of a judge to set bond and things like that. Um, but usually when I get involved is later on once that person's already appeared in court. Yeah. Uh, that, that I, I, do you find that many of your clients or many of the people you encounter are very confused about the process while they're in it? Absolutely. Um, they, they don't, they don't there, a lot of them are so intimidated by the whole the whole ordeal that they're kind of just, they don't know what's going on. Um, and so being able to answer their questions, being able to ask the right questions, I think obviously is, is difficult too if you've never been involved in anything like that. So having someone that you can ask questions of, and, and even if it's you know, a, a dumb question, I know there's nothing, there's, that, there's no such thing as a dumb question, but. No, there, there really are, uh, I've, well, I've heard of I, I mean, I don't, I don't like to promote that, but. <laughs> That's part of the part of the, the, the reason sometimes that the issues that I see is that, you know, they're afraid to ask the question when if you don't really know, you need to, need to ask and, and um, it makes you feel more comfortable going through the process and um, hap I'm happy to answer any questions that anyone has here regarding uh, that that area. But uh, yeah, I mean, when you, whenever you're first arrested, I think an officer might be able to tell you exactly yeah. what they go through. Absolutely, and and we'll get to you, Adam. Then uh, you nervous? Are you nervous? Cool, calm, collected. Now, Adam, to let you know, uh, he texted me earlier and said, "Stop by the roof set," um, because he had been there since what 5:30 this morning. Yes, thereabouts. So Adam has been going, giving his life to this community of Laporte since 5:30 in the morning, and. He even had time to shower and dress up before he came. So everyone, give a round of applause for Adam Hannon. So, um, so the police are in the news sometimes um, in America and um, what's happening all over. Uh, obviously, 
you guys kind of have sometimes a bullseye on you in the media, you know. Um, and I've talked to you uh, personally about some of these issues. Um, there's, there's police versus this person or police versus this demographic. How is the Port County trying to navigate these issues to stay above the fray, to not get bogged down in the politics of movements right now? Sure. Uh, I, I think we uh, want to make sure that we're doing the right things. You can pull the mic a little closer. A little closer. Yeah. There we go. Uh, we want to make sure we're doing the right things and doing our job uh, correctly. <laughs> and uh, Yes, sir. How's that? <laughs> a little better? <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, like I said, we want to make sure we're doing the right things and, and uh, we're being fair and consistent across the board. And um, a lot of that goes back to our training and, and how we uh, are, can take our, our job training and then go out into the field and perform those duties. Now, um, you're, a part of, you're a part of like continual training with police officers, yes. right? How important do you think that is? Oh, it's crucial. Um, I, I'm currently the field training manager at the Sheriff's Department, and um, we've, we, we're a much younger department. We're getting younger, uh, lots of new hires, and it is uh, crucial for us to be able to, uh, first of all, do that academy training uh, for, for a new officer and then have them come back and start uh, that field training process and, and build a solid foundation uh, for them to have uh, to start off a, as, a, as a new officer. Um, so... I once caroled, Christmas caroled in the jail. It was my own, well, I shouldn't say that. It's my, it's my only adult experience <laughs> as um, a, in the LaPorte County Jail. So far. Though there are, th so far. But there are rumors, you know, that my father was a police officer, yeah. that we were often put in there as babysitters when we were young. He would put us in there and in an empty cell and then, you know, get some work done. Classic Neil. Um, <laughs> He's not here tonight. Um, who is filling the jails right now? What, 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 is, what do you see a lot of in the jail? Um, how, what's the average length of stay in the jail? What, what, Those what are do you really see good questions. Um, and, and we do, on our website, we have our uh, annual reports. that will have some of that information on it, uh, our annual jail report and uh, the merit report. Uh, we'll we'll on put that on our link, by the way, afterwards. Right. Um, uh, but I, I think um, we, we've got a lot of misdemeanor cases. Um, we, we see a lot of the, the same uh, issues that uh, communities, the same the communities in the Midwest and across the nation are facing. Uh, nothing more, nothing less. Um, just a lot of those same struggles. A lot of drug drug stuff. Absolutely. We've okay. We, we we have a lot of drug issues and mental health issues that um, you know we see both of those issues them having some type of misdemeanor charges and, and ending up in, in the, our jails. Now, back in 2016 in the Republican primary, I remember a debate um, that they were, I think it was when the, the top three candidates were still going. And it was uh, Ted Cruz, Donald Trump, and uh, John Kasich. And I remember this very vividly because it stuck out to me. And, and Kasich said, uh, it's unfortunate because in many of our communities, we use our jail as mental health facilities. We don't know what to do. So what happens is there's a crime committed, and oftentimes many of the people are just put in jail instead of taking to mental health facilities because there's such a lack of them. Obviously, sure. Shannon was here, your wife, uh, not long ago and talked about the lack of facilities. Do you, do you agree with that statement? Or? I do. I do. I, I think um, 
we, we don't just put people in jail. Yep. They, they have we have developed some sort of probable cause that they have they have done something that they should not have done according to Indiana code. Um, but a lot of them might have done that because they're struggling with some sort of mental health issue. And uh, for the a lot of normal citizens, they're just going to post their bond and move on with life. Uh, but somebody with, with some mental health issues, their family might think that that's the best place for them to be for a few days. Or uh, their family might know that they're going to receive the proper medications while they're while they're in the hospital, excuse me, in the jail, and so they'll, they'll let them stay there, uh, even though there isn't a, a large, uh, significant bond that would get them uh, out and back with their families. Yeah, that, that, that's, it, it's interesting to think about, like you said, um, that, that people can be kept in there because many family members think it's the safest place for them to be, right? Sure. Um, but sometimes I feel like we're just punting down the, the road, though, right? Absolutely. Um, and so uh, it's, a, it's an area, though, that obviously as we think about how what are long-term solutions to criminal justice issues, that's one of them, right? Because if we're not treating the root cause of what's bringing people to these crimes, not to say that obviously uh, some people just do bad things. Correct. But there are people that, like you said, based on maybe anxiety or depression that has led to this, to this, to this, that has led them down a path that um, ha has brought them to this place, right? Um, and the goal is not to get them back to that place, hopefully. Um, which leads me to uh, Judge Friedman. How are you, Greta? Good, thank you. Good. Um, if you can hold the mic close, because uh, we want everyone to hear, especially online, um, those of you that are here. Um, so uh, you run one of my favorite programs in the whole county. And anybody that attends here, which many of you do, knows I talk about it fairly often. It's the problem-solving court, the drug court. I am such a, a huge believer in this program because I'm a big believer in restorative justice. The difference between, we talk about this a lot here at State Street, retributive justice versus restorative justice. What makes you passionate about, or maybe first, describe what the problem-solving court is and why you're so passionate about it. Sure. Um, the problem-solving court is it's an alternative sentencing court. We take people who, uh, it's for felonies only, and we have the lowest felonies up to the highest felonies in our court. And what happens is people will plead guilty to whatever the charge is, and they agree that rather than going to prison or to jail, they will come into this program. It is for drug and alcohol uh, abusers. Uh, I, should, I should say it's for more than people who abuse. It's for addicts, okay, of either alcohol or drugs. Um, and they come in through various ways. Um, Sergeant Hannon is uh, also on the team. We have a team of people from many different disciplines. We have a prosecutor, a defense attorney, we have law enforcement, we have uh, a couple um, mental health providers, we have a um, few um, therapists, we've got someone from community corrections, uh, I may be missing one or two, but, but that's the general core group, okay? The idea being that these people are not going to get better if they're incarcerated, um, if these people really want to get better and want help. They will go into this program, be diverted from prison. It's a minimum of 18 months, and, and Adam knows from being on this um, that for most people it takes, takes longer than that. Uh, they didn't get there overnight, and so they're not going to get out of this overnight. But essentially they get intensive 
therapy. They come before a judge, at least early on in the program, once a week. They go to self-help meetings, which might be a smart recovery meeting. It might be AA, it might be NA, it might be some other type of, of um, uh, self-help group that they would work with. And so they have uh, also at least minimum of three random drug screens every week. So when you think about somebody who has spent their entire however many months, years before, uh, really doing nothing but chase a high, and then you force them to be this organized and do all of that, um, it's pretty severe for most of them. Most of them at some point decide, you know, I'd, I'd rather not do this. And Adam's had a lot of heart-to-hearts with some folks to try to, you know, encourage them to keep going. But the idea is that we are hoping to change their behavior and ultimately end of the line if they do graduate. Um, either their charges will be significantly reduced or maybe dismissed. And people will, will tell us that getting clean was really the easier part. Uh, it's changing your behaviors. It's changing your lifestyle. It's changing, uh, you lose your criminal thinking. It's changing the way you view yourself, your self-esteem, your place in the world, um, becoming basically part of the community again. And uh, as you said, it's very restorative. Um, and I guess for those reasons, and I, ad I know Adam agrees, uh, that's why we do it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, where we all have opportunities to do different things, and um, we're very blessed to be able to, to see if we can help somebody. Um, there, was, there was one someone who said, well, you know, how many can you actually save? And I said, well, number one, I don't claim that we're going to save anybody, but one, one. Um, and we have had, I think, close to 37 graduates. We've been open for six and a half years now. Our next graduation will be December 4th. You're all invited. Um, it'll be at the county complex. But, but it's important to understand that if you save a parent, you very well may be saving children. If you break the cycle of addiction, of abuse, of this kind of behavior, um, it's a ripple effect that we, we don't know. We don't know what ultimately we may be doing, and, and we've seen that. As a matter of fact, um, somebody who is getting very close to graduation, um, all he's ever really wanted was to be a dad, and his son was born this morning, and he sent us a picture. He's going to be a great dad. He's been in our program about two years, and he's ready for the challenges ahead, and we're just so proud of a lot of our people. That's fantastic, and again, I get kind of goosebumps just thinking about it because um, now I'm 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 a believer. I'm not cynical about government. I'm a believer in government. I think good government's a, an important thing, but not every part of government works, and this does. And I've asked this question before. I know I've asked it to you, but I've asked it to other people too. Why? So, w what is the recidivism rate for people that don't go through this program? And then, what is it for those that do go through the program? I don't know. Uh, let's see. It's pretty significant. If you're just on probation, uh, it's a pretty significant rate of people who will probably recidivate somewhere 60%, mm -hmm. I think, something along those lines. Um, and I can't give you a, a, an actual rate, but I know that nationally, uh, and it pretty much bears out locally, 75% of people who graduate from a drug court, and there's about 3,000 in the country, will never be arrested again. Okay. Yeah. As a police officer, that's significant, oh, isn't it? That's huge. Um, because again, and I think, Greta, you're, you're absolutely right. 
this isn't just one individual. This is a ripple effect. This impacts the, the people that are around them. That this impacts their relationships. It impacts um, getting a person back in the workforce, getting a person participating in society again. And it's just such a beautiful problem. But I will say, there, there are people that push back against this program. And the reason they do, typically, that I hear, which, again, I, I, I think there's reasons to... I, I, I don't buy this as a tangible reason, but they'll say, it's expensive. Um, it's expensive. But why do you not think... Why are you shaking your head to that? Because, and maybe Adam can help me, I don't know, uh, the cost to house somebody in jail thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. You put them in prison, it's more. In order to go through uh, the problem-solving court, it's about $6,000 for somebody to go through that program. So the amount of money you're saving is extremely significant. Uh, you are hopefully making the community safer, um, and you're, you're probably doing some good. We know that even for the folks who do not graduate from the program, but they usually stay in for quite a while, they learn something. And if they don't graduate, a lot, of, um, a lot of times we have seen people come back and they'll say, I wasn't ready at the time, but I listened, and now I'm doing great. And they'll proceed to tell the caseworker or whoever, the, sometimes the officers, um, what it is they're doing. And so something was gained. So it is extremely um, more economical than putting them in jail. You got anything to add to that? Uh, with law enforcement, it seems like over and over again we see the same faces that we're dealing with. And uh, we start to think, where are we, how are we solving any issues with this? Problem Solving Court is the first program that I have seen that, that we are, they're actually getting to the root problem and they are identifying and they're helping uh, the participants um, change their, their way of thinking. And you're right, it, it is breaking that cycle mm -hmm. and then they're, they're going to teach their, their children uh, the, the new way of acting and thinking, and we're, we're getting to the root issue of the problem. It's, it's a fantastic program. Can yeah. I add to that? Yeah, no, no. You don't have to ask for permission, though, so thank you're good. You, thank you. I, I hope you read something out of here, though. No, no I, it, it does not have anything to do with this. But, I, you know, it, aside from the money aspect of, of the costs, it's a program that works. Speaking from experience with individuals who you, you create some type of plea bargains or some type of deal with the prosecutor's office for, let's say, probation. Uh, it doesn't work the same. That you, you oftentimes see people fail during probation. And what's next? A probation revocation is filed by the probation department. And they're back at the same cycle. So it's, you're not teaching them to change their behavior. You're not teaching them to deal with the actual problem. You're just kicking it down the road. And it, it happens all the time you're able to get some type of deal worked out because no one wants to spend the time and the money to go through some type of trial, let's say. Yeah. And then what ends up happening is, again, there's the same issue con continues to arise, as opposed to when you have you know, a, a problem-solving court like uh, the drug court, it teaches them to act differently, to behave differently. It, it's a lot of the individuals that we deal with don't have a lot of the same background, obviously, that we do. And so they, they, don't, they don't know how to adjust to certain things the same way we do. So by having a program like that, that forces them to keep a calendar, be accountable for you know, certain things that they have to do, that's a, a complete different mindset than what they're used to. 
and, it, and you, it's not something you get through probation or even in, in jail or prison. So it's, it's uh, regardless of how much it costs, it works. And we need to be looking for programs that work and that make our community safer and uh, help people. Yeah, and that, that, and I, I say it half jokingly, but like I like I do tell people, you you know, as as government officials, they don't always get the um the 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 privilege to say this program that we're doing works. This I think is just unequivocal. It works. Um, so um, so I'm a big big fan of it. Um, I I will say though, h how much because to tie this back into some of these other, we've had conversations on child advocacy. We've had conversations on mental health. We've had conversations on drug abuse here, addictions. Do, do you find that, as uh, Greta, as you're dealing with um, some of these people that are going through the drug court or the problem-solving court system, is it is coping mechanisms one of the bigger kind of issues that you're dealing with? Because we, we talked with a principal here at Riley, who have an elementary school here. That's one of the things they're trying to deal with is how to teach kids coping mechanisms. Do you, do you have anything to add on that? Do you see that? Absolutely. Um, a lot of the people deal with, probably most of them, have some kind of significant trauma. Um, the people who raise them um, sometimes are the people who gave them their first drug, their first drink. Um, they sold them. Um, there, there are lots of, of things that the people we should be able to trust most in our lives um, hurt people in their charge. And so a lot of these people come from backgrounds that are so broken, they have no idea um, who they can trust, and they wind up trusting the wrong people. Um, and it takes a long time um, to, to trust. One of the things that's, and then I'll get back to your, your yeah, question. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. But one of the things that is so um, interesting, and I think wonderful and unusual about having a team concept is people begin to take a look at individuals um, that they never would have seen before as being on their side. One of the most um, important persons on any problem solving court team is law enforcement. And Adam has had the opportunity to share himself uh, and learn um, from people on this, on, this, um, on this court. And it's amazing to me how many people, when they get into trouble, will want to talk to the officer. They'll want to talk to Adam um, because they've realized there is somebody in authority who does care. Uh, and so that's our, once they are able to make that connection that they can trust people, um, I, I like to say that they don't care what you know until they know you care. And, and so that's, that's um, pretty important. But yes, there's a lot of coping mechanisms that are completely uh, foreign to these folks. They, they, for whatever reason, um, can't handle daily stress, and they take a pill or they take a drink, and it continues from there. And um, teaching them how to deal with everyday stress, uh, a lot of times I'll, I'll ask, you know, what, what's your goal? I mean, maybe long term. Well, I, 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 I want to have a normal life free of stress. And then we chat about that, that that's <laughs> never going to happen. But it's, it's as I tell them, it's, it's not about avoiding the storms. It's learning how to dance in the rain. I saw that sign one there some, somewhere, and it, it kind of made sense to me. These people need to be taught how to handle daily stress and practice it. Mm -hmm. and, and again, to, to go back to our a previous conversation, 
why it's so important in our school system to help kids and children, especially those who are living in, in uh, trauma-informed kind of like care environments, that uh, there are ways to cope with the, the world around you. And if we don't teach children how to learn how to cope, oftentimes they become adults who don't know how to cope as well. Um, now this question is open to the th three of you, and then we'll get to everyone else's question. Because I, 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 it's a topic that has, I've been thinking about, especially because it's been in the news a lot. Um, Indiana is um, doing a trial program on bail, okay? So, and I think uh, eight, 10, 12 counties, I forget what it is, Stark, uh, Porter, and St. Joe being three of them, um, they've, they're, they're in a trial program getting rid of the um, uh, bail system. Um, and I guess, Greta, you might know a little bit more about it to inform everyone here. What's the debate surrounding that? Why is that a, a controversial thing? Why is it a good or a bad thing? What do you think? And then sure. we'll ask the two of you who are um, also it, involved in bail. It, it started nationally um, in about 2007 or 8. The National um, Institute of Corrections, which is part of the Department of Justice, began looking at statistics over about the last 25 or 30 years as to um, economic justice and fairness. And it, it all boils down to essentially when someone stands before a court uh, at their original arraignment um, and the, I guess the, the, the only thing we have to go on is what kind of a crime did you commit um, and you know, what kind of a history might you have um, that doesn't give much information for a judge. And frequently, bail is set, and a violent, wealthy person can make your bail. How does that make us safer? A nonviolent, poor individual sits there. And there's a, uh, a, a project called Three Days Count, the idea being that statistics have borne out through decades of, of studying this, that if you are in jail for three days or more, you're pretty much gonna lose it all. You are gonna lose a job, not too many people, particularly the poor, maybe a wealthy business owner can be in jail three days, although they're gonna bond out, but they're not gonna lose a job. The average person probably is gonna lose a job, which means they're gonna probably lose or be in jeopardy of losing their housing, their car, their children, and it goes downhill from there. And so we know again from, from looking at statistics, um, those people are more likely to commit new crimes because maybe they don't have anything to lose anymore, okay? So the idea is how do we make release from jail fair? And so this whole movement is trying to uh, decide on another way to do that and make those decisions that doesn't necessarily include money. Um, the, the very brief history of bail is that it, it, it came over from England, uh, bail means in French to deliver. And so originally bail was not money, bail was a person. I would get arrested and my mother would come and say, I'll take her. The idea for bail, the purpose is to make sure you come back to court and to make sure that you do not commit any crimes while you're out, okay? So my mother would say, absolutely, I, you know I'm gonna get her back, okay? And she's not gonna do anything in between now and then. That's the purpose of bail. Well, as our country changed and people move west and families disperse, 
Mom was no longer there. So they had to come up with some kind of a way to uh, figure out who they should let free, and, and money became kind of the standard. If you can pay money, we know you're going to come back. Well, of course, as we've learned over time, uh, that tends to impact the minorities and the poor much more strongly than it does others. So that's kind of where we're at in terms of looking at uh, bail. So the, the other answer that I, I would give is that across the country we are now looking at what's called um, risk assessment tools. We know from evidence-based scientific research over the last 30 years there are, um, there are questions, there's research, there are tools we can use that are going to be much more informative to a judge when making that decision. It's called risk assessments, and when I say risk, I don't mean danger. I mean risk to reoffend, risk to not come back, okay? So those types of um, assessments, and they don't take very long, uh, but in all of those pilot counties uh, that Nate uh, mentioned, those are being done prior to a person coming to court. It doesn't substitute for a judge's decision-making power. It helps the judge give them more information. And do, do we have any data suggesting, like, is it working? Is the, is the trial programs in Indiana working so far, or do you know? I have no idea. Okay, no. all right. Um, as a police officer, as a lawyer, what do you guys think? My, my idea regarding uh, bail reform is this. You know, our, the backbone of our country and as Americans is a big issue is the fact that you're innocent until you're proven guilty. And a, a lot of times I see, you know, the, the perception is because you're in jail, because, you know, you've done supposedly something bad, that you're already guilty. And th the fact that you're able to be released from jail, you're able to prepare your defense, uh, meet with a defense counsel, uh, to be able to be properly represented is, is crucial mm -hmm. to the very fact of being an American. It's a constitutional right. You're not, you are, you have the right to an attorney, you have the right to to be able to meet with that person, gather evidence that you can be able to use at your trial. And when you put someone in jail and you make the bond or the bail so high where they're not able to leave, that, that hinders incredibly the ability to prepare for a trial. And so, like what a Judge was saying is, the fact that you have a, a very violent person that, that, is, that threatens the community who, who is wealthy and is able to bond out and hire the best you know, attorneys, they're able to effectively prepare for a trial as opposed to someone that can't uh, prepare. It, that's, that's crucial to bail reform. And, and everyone you know, should, should think about the fact that uh, our founding fathers made some of these rights for everyone for the fact that you are innocent until you're proven guilty and that you have the right to counsel. It's uh, a big part of why we have our country. Absolutely. Adam, have anything? I, I have not read uh, a lot about bail reform. I do know that uh, the leaders in our community, uh, the judges, have, have all been meeting and working on. We can't hear Adam. Is, is Mike on or is it on? Okay. Yeah, I think we're all right. Sorry. Yeah, thank you. Uh, like I, s I said, I, I have not read uh, a lot about um, bail reform, but I know that the leaders in our community are working on that and looking at some other aspects, which I think uh, we need to be constantly um, looking at the way that we're doing things and reevaluating to see if. Uh, possibly there's a uh, way we can do things better mm -hmm. and a lot of things that we do. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so um, let's get to your questions, and I'm just going to go through these questions. Uh, if you guys, 
want to answer it, you know. I, I, I put it out there. We, we put it on the table. Whoever wants to take it and, and grab it uh, can. Um, if you don't have anything to add to it, or it's okay too. So don't, don't feel the stress here. Um, the first question we have is, um, it's, a, it, it's a specific question over a specific uh, case. Uh, why is convicted child molester slash killer, repeat offender, Richard uh, Debesky, a free man now, instead of not spending the rest of his life in prison where he belongs? I, I'm not familiar with this case. Do you guys know? or I, I don't. I know some details of, of some of the cases that he was involved in. Um, he, he's a very, uh, very bad man. But I cannot answer as to why he is um, assumed did not receive a life sentence okay. behind bars. I think there's a lot of different legal uh, things that, that went in and, and have gone into that. Um, he is uh, on the registry, and uh, he will remain on the registry. I mean, I don't know the specifics of the case, but a lot of times something as mental health issues could be involved. Um, there could be some type of... Uh, agreement made with the, the prosecuting attorney's office. It, there's a lot of different things that could come into play regarding whether or not a person serves a life sentence or, you know, uh, sentencing is, is, is complicated and uh, without, you know, knowing the actual details of the case, every case is different. So there could be very many, a lot of reasons as to why he's not and just Freeman, it, uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all sentencing, right? You don't, I mean, I'm, I, I know there are sentencing guidelines, mm -hmm. but it's, it, there, there is some freedom in there, right? So, um, and perhaps, I'm sure as a judge, how another judge may have sentenced might be different than how you would have, right? Or how a jury did or whatever. Um, you, you follow the law as best as you can and rule sure. in the best There's way. There's variables. Can. Yep. Um, use your best discretion. Um, Adam, this is a question for you. What kind of cultural sensitivity trainings do our law enforcement officers receive and what trainings do they need to receive that you believe that they're not currently? That's a really good question. Uh, we, we have state-mandated state training that we receive yearly um, that touch on some of those issues of cultural diversity. Uh, but I always, being a field training manager myself, I think there's more things we can be doing and that um, law enforcement in general should, like I said a few minutes ago, be looking at uh, how we have been doing things and evaluating possibly um, some other ways that we can train and get some some of that training as well. If, if, if you know, everyone came to Adam Hannon and said, okay, Adam Hannon, we want you to consult, you know, law enforcement officers around the country, what would be the thing that you're, what, what is the thing that most, most officers are missing in their training? Boy, that's really tough. Put me on the spot there, too. I know. <laughs> what are we most missing? What are you training? seeing as an officer that's been in for, you know, a number of years? What do you want to make sure when a new guy comes through that they know? Sure. I, I think that um, I, I want to make sure that, that officers uh, understand how to do their job correctly and that we can do our job correctly and still have empathy with who we're dealing with. And we can do things uh, with with uh, grace and treat everybody the same, and be able to still do our job well. Yeah, and I and I know you I know you well enough. Do you, do you have something there? I, no, I have right? a, yeah. a comment on yeah. that. Yeah, you know, growing up when I was in, in North Carolina, I, I grew up in North Carolina. 
one of the things that that really helped me create a, a relationship with police officers is local police officers would come through our neighborhood, talk to us, you know, as a small child, and you know, get out of their car, you know, shoot the basketball with us. That is is huge, mm -hmm. and and it's not something that you see as often anymore. And that goes a long ways when you're able to make a connection with someone that's young and be able to to show them that you're approachable that you know you're a person too that you're you know you're not this this guy you know and just in a in a police uniform that you can't approach that goes a long ways and and it translates to when you're older being able to you know be respectful of police officers uh, listen you know don't get, don't be on the defensive all the time that that can start at a really young age by simple things like having an officer you know talk to you you just be, be able to build some type of relationship. And I know that really helped me when I was young, mm -hmm. be able to be more respectful of officers and, and, and people in uniform. Mm -hmm. And I just don't see that as often. Yeah, th th there's a, a term called humanizing the badge. And I think that's important for uh, all law enforcement to, to understand and uh, to recognize that they need to be involved in their communities uh, outside of, of the uniform. And for people to understand that, that um, you know, we're your neighbors and uh, we're, we're just like everybody else, and um, we, we've done some good things with uh, our school resource officers and getting them plugged into schools, and I think they're able to make some of those connections with the kids that uh, have had not good mm -hmm. situations. You know, a lot of times uh, their only um, inter interaction with the police officers when they come right. and show up at the house and, the, and there's an arrest made, mm -hmm. and uh, with the school resource officers, they, they're able to sometimes develop that relationship with that uh, officer that's in the school every day. And I know that they have uh, talked about kids coming to them with, with uh, things that are on their mind, and it's just a really good situation for them. S speaking of school resource officers, a good segue into this next question. Uh, as a teacher at a diverse local high school, how can I practice restorative justice in my classroom and my community in an effort to stop feeding the suspension to prison pipeline? I'll start this one out. I, I think I would say educate yourself uh, about uh, what's going on in the community. Know the people you're dealing with. Try to find out as much you can about the students you see on a, on a relatively routine basis and listen, okay? I think listening is, it's a, it's a quality that we simply don't use enough. Preach it. Preach it, sister. <laughs> um, it, we have two ears and one mouth. And very often uh, we uh, are prone to waiting for the other person to finish and then telling us, you know, telling whatever we want. It's important for if you are in a position of authority to really listen. And there's something called motivational interviewing. Uh, probation departments are going to this all across the country simply because it, if I tell you to do something, you might do it, but maybe not. If I convince you it's the right thing for you and you come to that conclusion on your own, you're probably going to do it, and you're probably going to be bought in and invested. So motivational interviewing is something that um, I, I, you, you parrot what the person says. 
And so if you're listening as, as a teacher, as a student resource officer, and somebody comes to you, as, as a student in particular, they, they don't always have the right words. They don't always want to explain exactly. Uh, maybe they are, are kind of couching things. But if you're really listening, then you can give a, so what I hear you saying is, and you make it more. Mm. And the more you get, the more you'll have an opportunity to sift through, okay, what's the real problem here? How do I really direct this person? I have no idea if that's a helpful answer, but. I, uh, well, I, I, I think, again, we can't talk enough about the importance of listening. Uh, we, we are in a connective culture that constantly puts out, right? We, we, we send out tweets. We put things on Instagram. We, we just constantly, and um, we don't often learn to take in and listen and learn. And I, I think that goes way more than just the, the, to the question. Absolutely. But I, one, of the, one of the things that uh, just, just thinking about this now is a lot of times we take the easier road by just pushing it on down, you know, let someone else deal with it. I'm not going to listen to what the real problem that's going on. I'm going to let someone else, you know, deal with it. And maybe, you know, the, the JSC might be able to deal with the, their issues better than I can. When really, if you... Uh, what's JSC? Uh, Juvenile Service Center. Right. I knew. I just wanted right. to make sure. Or some, you know, or some. I mean, obviously, I knew. <laughs> <laughs> or so, or some type of principal or some type of counselor who may have more experience with this. When in fact, you know, th that's just the easy route. Maybe sit down and listen and talk to them, engage them, and see what it is that's going on, and see if you can help. You know, before just pushing it on to someone else. I I don't think we can undersell the importance of one person in a person's life. Right? It can be that one right. person that changes the trajectory. And, and like you said, that one person listening, that one person caring, that one officer being empathetic, that one, you know, um, can change everything. It can change a world. Um, next question is, um, so what's the major difference between jail and prison? I mean, I've seen a lot of TV, so I know, but. Well, no, jail, first of all, uh, if you're arrested, it's pretrial detention, and I think um, I've talked to the sheriff about this, and Adam can I explain further. Most people in jails are um, are pretrial detainees. They haven't yet been sentenced. So they're okay. technically they're innocent. Correct. Right. Now, uh, jails. Uh, once somebody's been convicted and sentenced, if they're sentenced to jail, it's usually because it's either a misdemeanor or a lower level felony. Okay. Prisons are for, in general, and, and I'm simplifying a lot, for major felonies, for people who are doing significant time, okay? I, I think the longest that someone could be sentenced to the county jail is three years. If there's anybody that can confirm that. It, I think that's a number that's jumping out at me right now, at least. Yeah, no, I'll confirm that. I, I, I <laughs> you know, sometimes, too, they're, they're, they might have been sentenced and they're waiting to be assigned to another prison. Oh, okay. So. So, so it can be like a holding place, yeah. too. Correct. So not everyone is technically innocent. Yeah, absolutely. No, but the, if you haven't been, if you haven't been uh, found guilty right, yet, right. you're still innocent. Going back to your point earlier. Exactly. You know. Right. Um, is, oh, there's a lot of them. Okay. Are there a lot of outstanding warrants in LaPorte County that cannot be followed up on, and if so, why? There are a lot of outstanding warrants in LaPorte County, yes. I, I don't have a number for you um, as far as following up on them. I think they can all be followed up on. It's just a matter of there are so many. That w we do have a warrant division. 
um, that will try to uh, make contact with people, let them know they have a, a warrant, go try to serve warrants. Most of their time is consumed with uh, traveling to other counties to uh, bring people back to LaPorte County. They have been located uh, and have, are being held on a LaPorte County warrant. Um, I, I wish I had a number for you. It's significant, the amount of warrants. But we are working to try to reduce that number um, as much as we can. And just to add to that, you know, sometimes I get calls from potential clients where they're asking me, can you help me, you know, deal with, with a criminal case? And you, you know, I don't know if everyone's familiar with my case, but Indiana has this program where you can, you know, search someone's name and it pops up with any criminal, you know, issues that they may have, as well as an active warrant. Oftentimes, you talk to these people, yeah, I can, I can, you know, help you out, you know, come to our office, we can talk about it. And as I'm talking to them, I'm looking up their my case information, and sure enough, there's an active warrant out, and they have no idea, you know. So that that's uh, it's really interesting, but it's easy it's easy ex easy to access, and um, that might that might be feeding into some of the issues regarding um, how how many we have is the fact that people don't know how to take advantage of the resources to see what's going on in their case or not. Does does that happen occasionally where uh, somebody, let's say Adam, uh, one one of your guys pulled somebody over, they didn't know that they had? Oh, warrant? sure, absolutely. Okay. Um, so how, how do you, I mean, how, how do you deal with that? Do you just okay, you know, uh, I need to take you with me. We need to deal with this. Yeah, kind of unfortunately, thing? at that point, th there is an active warrant for their arrest. Um, uh, it has been signed off on, so they. We, we do have to uh, serve that warrant, and bring them to the jail, so it can be read to them and, and served. I have a, a good good input here. Yeah. Uh, I recently had a, a case where a family was traveling uh, across the country to, to spend some vacation time in, uh, on the eastern side. And uh, the, the father had no idea that there was a no contact order with his son, who was also in the vehicle. The police pulled him over, you know, for speeding or something, and the, the police officer told him, did you know you have a, a, a no contact order with your son? And, you know, if, if, you, if you have this, I have to, you know, arrest you. He had no idea. He got arrested on the, on the way to for family vacation and uh, spent some time in the jail. And, you know, it's, it's just unbelievable how some, some individuals, they just, they don't know the system whatsoever. They don't have anyone helping them. And that's the kind of stuff that it can lead to. You know, the police officer just doing his job, and he, he runs the plates, runs the person's name, and lo and behold, there's, you know, a no-contact order with uh, someone that's in the car. So if somebody here wanted to check and see if they have a warrant out, it's what site? It's, or it's if I wanted to, like, snoop on people, <laughs> what is it? It's mycase.gov. If you just Google MyCase or uh, Quest, or not, yeah, is it my Quest? Case. My case. Right, it, it'll pop up. Yeah, and Indiana, my case, yeah. It's uh, not very difficult to, to find. And it's not just criminal, it's also civil. Is, is my mic on? There we go. <laughs> Adam, you still have to talk. Sorry, buddy. All right. Um, are there, uh, Judge, Judge Freeman, are there certain profiles of people that come to the problem or drug uh, court that you can say they have a profile where I think they're more likely to succeed? Personality, uh, kind of thing like that. Do you, do you see that? Um, I'm generalizing greatly. 
but we are, we are taught that we are to look for the high risk, high need. In other words, there, there is a high risk that they're going to continue their behavior and they have a high need because they don't have a support system, uh, they don't have an educational background, they don't have stable housing. Most of these people, not all, but most of them have tried everything else. We've got one person who's been in four different rehabs in the last three years, rehab facilities, didn't work. Most of these people have gone through maybe a traditional probation system, but, but as Nelson pointed out, traditional probation isn't very intense. It's, it's more designed kind of to keep a handle on you, make sure you're working where you say you're working, you're reporting, we're, we're laying some eyeballs on you. But, um, but these people, um, they're not able to, to conform um, because of, of an addiction of some kind. So they want us to take the high risk, high need because as they train us, the other folks probably can succeed without this program directing them elsewhere. We also know uh, from 30 years of research that if you put low risk, low need people, the sort of the low hanging fruit, if you put those folks in with the very high risk, high need, uh, these guys aren't gonna learn how to be better from this low risk person. This low risk person is gonna get exposed to all kinds of behaviors and people, people, places and things. They shouldn't be around, and so you're more likely to create another high-risk person <coughs> if you mix these populations. Um, and there's a question on who funds the problem-solving core? Is it county, state, federal funds? Who funds that? It's, it's a little bit of everything. We started the program about six and a half years ago, and we got a very small grant from the Drug-Free Partnership, and um, we are essentially funded foundationally by probation, by the courts, um, and by local small um, grants. We just got a grant for $10,500 to specifically do drug testing for synthetic marijuana. Um, we don't have the capability to do that now, and, and that's, as, as Adam and, and Nelson both know, that, that's a whole other creature that, that we're trying to figure out how to cope with. We were very fortunate about three years ago, we applied, uh, it was our fourth time for applying for this federal grant, and we decided, oh geez, if we don't get it this time, we're, we're gonna give up. We got it, and that was about $200,000. That enabled us to continue drug testing. It enabled us to hire a third person. Um, as you can imagine, being a case manager for these folks is extremely intensive, and um, we have uh, some wonderful case managers but there's only you know, so much they can do when you've got really high risk, high need people who are constantly needing you. So we needed this third person. Um, that, of course, that grant ran out, um, but we have gotten some other grants. Uh, we have, after about five years, we, we kind of wanted to get some experience under our belt before we went to the county council. And so we'd had some graduations and a lot of our county council persons and commissioners had come to our graduations and we were able to show them that um, versus that uh, we think this program might work, please fund us, we know it works, please help us. And um, so we have been to them in the past, we're going to them in the future uh, for some funding. Uh, so I it's a combination, we, we always take, uh, we, we do have some, some private funders uh, who will either give us money for or give us specific incentives 
um, for people, maybe haircuts or gas cards, um, all these cards, things like that, to kind of incentivize the people who are doing well in the program. Does that, does that answer no, your that's question? No, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so then if somebody here is a believer in this program, it, it is worth it. Talk, talk to your representatives or talk to your, your, your county representatives or your state or your federal representatives because right. it's good for them to hear that this is a program that people are excited about, right? Or that they believe exactly. it should, should be in their community. Exactly. Great. Um, here, here's a question. This is a kind of a unique question. Will the laws protecting animals and children get stiffer as the abuse gets because uh, Karen Bernanke was here for Family Advocates, and she said the difference that she sees now is not maybe the rise in amount of cases, though there is that, but that can obviously be manipulated based on whether or not DCS wants to take kids or not or whatever. But what she sees is it's actually more severe, the types of abuse, these kind of things. Will laws then, is it, uh, the question is, is, will the laws protecting animals and children get stiffer in the future, do you think? And that's really a question for legislators right. more than anything, right? You know, I, I can take a stab at this. Uh, you know, the, I, I do a lot of CHINS cases, children in need of services, and termination of parental rights. And I'd say in about 90% of my cases, usually there isn't a, a criminal side to it, uh, a neglect of a dependent, for example. It's, it, it's, not, it's not filed by the prosecutor's office. It's, not, it's just a CHINS case which is not criminal in nature, it's civil in nature. So regarding, you know, if you're wanting to make stiffer penalties or, you know, hold people accountable criminally, then you'd have to charge them as a neglect of a dependent or something like that. But that's, I don't see that happening that often, and I do a lot of Chin's cases, you know. Uh, and, and it may not merit a, a, an actual charge, but if, if, there, if, if it is getting, uh, if the, the reasons why they're opening chins cases or DCS is investigating cases is because it's getting more severe, then that's something that needs to be looked at by uh, prosecutor's office and, and properly determine if it needs to be charged as a neglect of a dependent. Great, thank, thank you. Um, how are the Community Corrections Center, we don't have Erica Stallworth here, but uh, how are the Community Corrections Center and the Juvenile Detention Centers working now? Anybody have any? insight on, on that? Well, I can do a little bit on uh, the community corrections. Maybe Nelsie can add a little bit on the juvenile services center. One of the things that, um, that prompted us to look at, in our county, um, getting a team together to deal with um, bail reform issues is that in January of 2020, the Supreme Court uh, and the legislature have determined that um, criminal rule 26 which says we will be using these risk assessment tools to add information to help with bail review. Um, it, additionally, we have figured out from looking elsewhere in the country, if you are releasing people, if the idea is to be more community focused in terms of rehabilitating people than, than prison and incarceration focused, then we need to have alternative programs out there to help. So the community corrections, um, has a lot of capabilities that are unused, and one of the things we really appreciated doing when, a, as Adam said, we, we got this kind of uh, policy task force that's been meeting. Uh, when we listened to each other, people were amazed at what the other agencies did 
Uh, one of them, uh, the police in Michigan City were amazed at what community corrections uh, has available in terms of uh, day reporting, dealing with workforce development, um, dealing with GED programs, dealing with um, cognitive behavioral therapy programs that are available out at community corrections to help people in the community uh, get what they need versus having them be in jail maybe. Mm -hmm. So th I think the juvenile service center does a great job. They have a great team that deals with uh, delinquency very well. Um, for the audience, the, the juvenile service center is, is uh, broken down into two sections, the secure section where um, it's very restrictive, it's like a cell, and then the, the, the residential side, which is less restrictive and more like a dormitory with you know, strict guidelines. And the, the juvenile service center does a very good job with the youth. The Kaya program uh, does a very good job issuing uh, mentors for some of these individuals, and I encourage anyone that's here to, to that's interested. To that's ran by family advocates. Correct, and, and and if you want to be a, a a volunteer, it's a great program, and you can really help out some some youth that that may need that mentor in their mentor in their life. Now, where I see a lot of the issues is the parents of these youths who may have gotten into some trouble also need help being able to address the issues that their, their children are dealing with. And that's kind of where I see where, where there isn't that, mm -hmm. that help. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes the juvenile service center does a better job you know, helping out the child than what's happening in the home. And so you know, if there could be some type of program where, uh, where you know, parents are held more accountable with what's going on in the home, that would be very helpful. And, th and that, that does happen in, in juvenile delinquency cases where parents are ordered by the court to participate in certain programs. Uh, but, you know, I'd li I, in my opinion, I'd like to see something through the actual juvenile service center, you know, address some of the things that are going on in the home and with the parents and not just rely on the programs that we have within the, within the juvenile service center. Uh, maybe in the future, um, uh, w in our in our second season and next year, we will um, we'll have uh, Erica Stallworth here and uh, maybe put a panel together mm -hmm. on just specifically juvenile justice kind of issues. And maybe Nelson, you'll come back for that. Um, Camp Summit. Uh, it, it's been around my whole life. I remember. Obviously, it's on Johnson Road right there. There's a question about it. So it was an outstanding program when it was established. Is it still an outstanding program? Or has politics undermined its effectiveness? I have no idea. Who runs Who runs the summit farm? Or Camp, Camp, summit? Camp Summit is the juvenile, right, th where they have to... I, I, I don't know. I, I think they recently, within the last six months, uh, had a, uh, a transfer or conversion of... Um, I, don't, I don't believe it's juveniles there anymore. Um, I think it is... Uh, is it females? Females. I think adult it's females. females. Yeah. I think who, who runs? I, obvi obviously, we don't run this. State of Indiana, right? <laughs> or I hope we don't run this, no, and we're it's like, it's, ah, not, ah. it's not county run. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it's not county <laughs> no. run. <laughs> I, I know that. <laughs> okay. So it's the state that runs that? Yes. Okay. Um, so we can't speak effectively um, or uh, definitively on that. Uh, here's another question. Maybe, uh, Nelson, this is for you. Can a poor person without means who faces actions get access to effective legal defense attorneys in LaPorte County? Oh, ab absolutely, and I think our courts do a great job of, of providing public defenders for 
indigent individuals. Uh, if someone comes into court and can't afford to hire an attorney, they can let the judge know. The judge goes through some questions to ask them and to determine whether or not they need a public defender. And I, I've seen it all the time. You know, more likely than not, they're able to be a public, uh, be appointed a public defender who is able to represent them. And the public defenders are from the county, so um, it's the, it, we're able to meet with them. We're able to talk to them. And yes, they're able to uh, receive counsel. Um, this is a bail question. What does bail money go towards? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, bail money uh, can go towards lots of things. Um, you may get it right back. Okay, there's, it's important to understand that there's two types of bail. There's surety that goes through a bondsman. You don't get that back. Okay. So let's say bail is set at $5,000, 10% cash. That means you can pay 10% or $500 to a bondsman, okay? And they will then get you out. They are then acting as sort of the dog, so the bounty hunter type. So of do they pay the $5,000 then? They pay 500 okay? And then um, the idea being if, if you don't appear for court it, or you get in trouble again, that, that bondsman is dog, the bounty hunter, going to come and find you and uh -huh. then because they want the money. So it, they put the money out, okay? So that money does not come back, wh which is another problem um, that, that we have found impacts the poor more than uh, the non-poor because the, the, the non-poor frequently, they know exactly um, that if they pay to a bondsman, they're not getting it back, and they can afford, they'll scrounge up whatever it is, and then they'll get it back. So they may get it back. It may go, depending on what the plea entails, it may go to pay for some fines and costs. It may go, some people um, who are um, maybe gonna be on probation for six months or so, know that they're going to not be able to, at least for the first few months, because they're not working, pay their monthly probation fees of $50. They may ask that it go towards the first few months of that. Um, and it may go towards, um, depending on the situation, part of it may be returned to the public defender's mm -hmm. fund to help pay for the public defender that was appointed. Um, right now, as it stands, we have a bond schedule, and that and that will be addressed as we move forward with this um, uh, task force about bond and, and changing things. We'll always have one, but it may be adjusted. Uh, and so, depending on whether you're a, a, a demeanor, a, a minor felony, or a major felony, um, it's different amounts. So, if let's say you you have um, a, a misdemeanor, your bond is going to be if you have one, it's going to be really low. So you're not going to be able to afford an attorney just on that. But you can assign the bond receipt and let, when you go, for instance, talk to Nelson, you're gonna say, listen, I posted a $300 bond, you can have that receipt, okay? So when, he, when we get to the end of, of the case, Nelson will say, your honor, I've been promised the receipt per assignment, Nelson will be paid, okay? Does, does that help answer that? No, uh, yeah, no, that's, I didn't know that. Uh, that's, that's fantastic, I didn't know that. Um, and, and generally, when you make bail or, or you're able to post that amount, usually you're not, you're not able to get a public defender because you're able to use that money to hire private counsel, generally. So I'm going to guess then, putting things together, Dog the Bounty Hunter doesn't want bail reform. Hmm. Oh, you betcha. <laughs> <laughs> Dog is not happy. Dog <laughs> is showing up at legislatures across the country saying this is going to kill us and this is why it's bad and giving all kinds of statistics. Oh. Okay. 
All right. So, so there, there, are, there are people that aren't in favor of this because it will impact their livelihood, essentially. Absolutely. Okay. Um, do you know how much is spent on bail in, like, a county or in a nation or, you know, I mean, roughly? You, is that statistic ever known? It's probably it's out there somewhere, but I don't have a clue. Yeah. A lot. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is uh, a, a question. I, I don't know if the premise is right here, so correct the premise if it's not. If bail money is a steady stream of profit, will the bail system ever be terminated? Some, some states are doing that. California just passed a law. They are doing away with money bail. So it will all be based on re release or detention will be, released on, um, um, will be based on risk factors, okay? Now, having said that, we all understand that there are certain crimes that you're not gonna get out, okay? If you are uh, accused of child molesting as an A felony, if you are accused of murder, if you're accused of very high level felonies. But you're gonna be a, a violent to the world around you. Absolutely, you? Yeah. absolutely. Um, the only thing that's not bailable is murder, I believe, okay, and maybe treason. Uh, anything else is bailable. But again, depending on um, the crime, the risk, the history, things like that, um, these people may not get out mm -hmm. for good reason. The idea is to release people who are don't need to be there yep. um, because we have massive jail overcrowding problems. Um, just recently, the, uh, the sheriff has been kind of sending out information letting us know we we're at our capacity, we're a little over, those types of things. Um, so we know, and we all know that it costs a lot of money to keep people who don't need to be in jail, in jail, then that's our taxpayer money. Maybe it's better spent elsewhere. Great. Um, is there a difference between the drug court and Judge, Judge Stahlbrink's reentry court, and what does that court do to help offenders? Sure. Those people have, they have um, pled guilty, they've been sentenced, they've come, they've done prison time and they're coming back into the community. Um, it is not as intense in terms of um, treatment, drug testing, um, and, and those types of things. Um, what they do is uh, essentially everybody who comes out, um, whereas not everybody who's arrested comes into drug court, but everybody who comes out of uh, Judge Stahlbrink's um, or Superior Court One um, in Michigan City comes out back into the community, into the reentry court, okay? I think it's maybe a shorter period of time. I think it's about a year. Um, some people have done all of their time. Some people have done what's called a split sentence. In other words, they had a certain amount that they had to do in prison, and if they did okay, they could be released after a certain amount of time back into probation. Those people also can come out and be part of the reentry court. So the idea essentially is that we're trying to reintegrate, because if you think about the, the environment in a, in a prison, um, it's extremely different from the environment out. Uh, and so sometimes these people have gotten help, they've gotten treatment, or they've gotten worse and they're coming back out, are they coming into exactly the same environment? Is that good or bad? Um, do they need help finding a job, probably? And that's one of the things that um, reentry court helps with. They do a lot of work with um, the Workforce Development Office, Work One, to try to help these folks sort of reintegrate um, into 
back into society. Now, I, I don't know, uh, Judge Freeman, if you operate under this, but we, we've gotten a couple questions on, do you need help? Do you need volunteers? Do you, do you need people to engage in that? And, and if so, how can people engage with this type of program? Sure. Uh, I always uh, um, tell folks they're certainly welcome to come to court. We have it um, almost every Thursday at 11. It's uh, it right now, we, we have been traveling nomads for a while in, in LaPorte. We are in the basement of the uh, county council building, or the county, um, county thank you, county, R county Right complex. by the furnace, is that where they put you? Or uh, well, it's, <laughs> where, it's where Superior Court 3 used to be. It's, <laughs> a, it's a functioning courtroom, but we're, we're there right now. Um, I can't ask for, I can't solicit funds as a judge, okay? But I can advise people that if they wish to volunteer, um, they, can, they can come to see, they can um, uh, take an get an idea of what's needed. We've had, the Methodist Church has been extremely helpful. They've had folks donate bikes, they've had folks donate um, gift cards, um, things like that. One of the things that makes, in addition to the team concept, this program different than regular uh, court, is that we all know um, we learn as humans in a couple different ways. When we do something well and we're praised for it, we think to ourselves, I should do that again. That worked. I like that. On the other hand, if we do something wrong and we're sanctioned, uh, ideally we should go, hmm, I, I, that wasn't such a good idea. Maybe I shouldn't do that again. Now, that's a really simplistic way of explaining cognitive behavioral therapy. So when we have somebody who hasn't done anything right for five weeks in a row, and on the sixth week, they follow all the rules, they do everything, they should get some type of an incentive, some type of reward. And so we give um, gift cards, we give um, books, we give haircuts, we give um, things like that that would, would matter mm. to some of these folks and that they can't afford to do. Yeah, that's Kay? great, that's great. Uh, Adam, this is a question for you. Uh, what do you think about needing resource officers in the school? Uh, more specifically, touching on Portage schools refusing any resource officers. What's your opinion of that? I think, I, I've already talked about some of the benefits of having the school resource officer in the school. Uh, and, and I didn't even touch base, I, I didn't even start talking about um, the having someone that, that can react to a situation that's going to need an officer, right? So it's, it's twofold. The, res the school resource officer is there for, uh, to be able to have those interactions with the children in the school, to be someone that they can uh, learn to trust, that they can bring issues to, someone they can count on, and someone that's there every day. Uh, the Sheriff's Department doesn't um, have different officers reporting each week. We have the same person assigned to that school, and I think that's important for the students to be able to develop that relationship. Now, if we want to talk about school safety and the importance of having the officer there, I think that's equally as important, uh, given uh, you know, a lot of the events that we have seen across the nation. And, and um, the situation uh, over in Portage, I don't really understand. I, I think um, I, I've done a little bit of reading, but it seems like that um, they need to ha have a sit down and be able to work things out. And let's talk about what's best for the children in that situation. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Um, Nelson, what can we do be doing as Laportians to make positive change to our criminal justice system here? What can the average person do to help um, make positive change? That's a 
tough question. Um, in the criminal justice realm, uh, the, the average person, I think, could um, just stay informed of what's going on, uh, be proactive instead of just uh, sitting by and uh, not being involved. I mean, th there will be a, an opportunity for the community to talk about this, I'm sure, about criminal um, criminal rule 26, that's the, the, the bail reform information, and just being engaged and attending uh, public meetings, uh, county council meetings, commissioners meetings, and just being um, over overly uh, proactive in, in having a, your voice heard instead of just sitting by and letting, you know, things happen without um, talking about it in a, in, a, in a forum that is effective. Because oftentimes I see, you know, some of these Facebook posts and threads on social media where p people have a lot of opinions and um, they're expressing them in these areas, but they don't come out and they don't, you know, talk effectively and they don't communicate their concerns in a, in a place that really matters. So I think that's... Sh showing up takes work, right? Exactly. So, I, I mean, that's, I think, not only in the criminal justice realm, but if you want to be involved and you want your voice to be heard and, and you want to be a proactive citizen, you have to show up and you have to be uh, willing to step up and, and talk to the, your elected officials and, and talk to uh, individuals that are on different boards. Uh, so that's, I think that's my, that would be my answer to how to. Yeah, and to, uh, to add to that, Nelson, I think I, I talk to a lot of people that, that feel like either um, they, they haven't earned a voice, essentially, even though they have a voice, but, you know, um, I, I know uh, uh, Representative Presso well enough to know that he always welcomes input, and, and so um, they would much rather have input face-to-face -face and talking like this than um, something put up on a message board where, you know, that, that's not dialogue. Right. So well, it's um, also oftentimes not true. Yeah. Um, the information that is, is yeah. shared in a lot of times in social media. But it's on the Internet, though, mm -hmm. so it has to be true, right? Well, that's true. That's okay. true. Um, but if you, if you do go to these meetings, like Nelson said, not only are you educating yourself, you're, sh you're, you're teaching your children. This is what we do as a civil society. You know, a lot of, um, a lot of us growing up um, had civics classes, and it was really explained to us. And um, I don't know how much of that is done, or, or I, I know that high school students go to county council meetings, county commission meetings. Yeah, I see them suffer through them sometimes. Yes, yes, yes absolutely, <laughs> just, just like adults. But um, I think the more you can make yourself aware of what's going on at all kinds of boards and commissions, going to court, things like that, I think it helps you get a better picture. And, and as you said, Representative Presso, Senator Bahacek, um, you know, the, all county council, the county council, the city, city councils, yep. they are all... Um, they are our, they work for us, yep. okay, and we're part of this. So if we just sit back and complain and let everybody else do the work, then we're part of the problem just as well. And there's also, I think it's important to remember that um, information and education is empowering. And so if you have the information, um, you feel like maybe there's something you can do, okay? And I think it's really important for people to know that. Because I think um, when people feel powerless, they retreat, and 
I think it was Thomas Jefferson who said, all it takes for evil to flourish is for good men to stay silent. Mm -hmm. And so when people don't participate, sometimes good things don't happen. Yeah, absolutely. W one of the uh, discussions we're going to have here is essentially a, a civic engagement type of, of discussion. And I, I talk to a lot of people, you know, that want to get involved. They don't know what a county clerk does. And, and honestly, I don't blame them. Where do you learn that stuff? You know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. Um, anymore. So having those kind of conversations about, you know, hey, uh, what does this person do? How do we have this conversation? If you have this issue, who do you talk to? Um, so that we can have a more informed uh, community and we can engage in dialogue. And that's um, one of those, you know, there are no stupid questions um, because a lot of people really don't know, okay, yeah. what does the auditor do? What does the treasurer do? What does the surveyor do? Um, I think that's a terrific idea. Okay, stop. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's being done to reduce illegal drugs in community corrections in the jail? Specifically in community corrections? Yeah. What, what's the difference between community corrections and the jail? Is there anything different? Sure. Community corrections is uh, the facility that our, our work release uh, program resides in. Um, okay. The jail, obviously, is, yep, is, the is jail. where we're correct. Um, inside of our jail, last year, they purchased a, uh, a, a body scanner. And it has, uh, with this body scanner, we're able to, uh, every person, every inmate that we bring in, um, they, they run them through this scanner. And we have uh, located uh, narcotics that they have stashed in areas where we typically would not be able to find them before. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that is, has been uh, significant in, in reducing the number of things that were, were being trafficked inside of the jail facility. Uh, I cannot speak for community corrections. I, I don't know their process or procedures out there um, I as much as I do with the, with the jail. Um, Adam, uh, staying with you a little bit, do you see more of a connection to youth crime and family situations or youth crime and boredom to do in community or nothing to do in a community? I would say a little bit of both. I, I could see both with that. Uh, you're, you're pretty good, though, oftentimes. Uh, I've, I've actually talked to you about something. Hey, this thing happened. You're pretty good at knowing, and eh, it was probably just a bored kid, right? You sure, know, absolutely. Um, yeah. And so, um, Attorney Picardo, do you think attorneys get enough cultural sensitivity trainings, or do you think continual education should be required in this area? Well, as attorneys, we're all, we all have to have continuing legal education classes, and there's a plethora of different classes that you can take. And I'm sure there are uh, many regarding um, cr the sensitivity aspect and, and how to, uh, we have to have a certain amount of ethics credits each year. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really up to an attorney to, to, to decide and choose what kind of CLE classes that they take, um, but you know the fact that you, that we are required to to have a certain amount of hours is is great, but maybe that that is something that can change where you have to have a certain specific type of a CLE instead of just you know whatever you want to choose whatever you pick. Um, so I, I mean I, I think w w to answer the question is we we do have to have continuing legal education classes. They may not be specifically regarding that specific topic. Uh, we are required to do some ethics uh, that may not have anything to do with that. So maybe that is something to, 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 to 
that needs to happen where you have to have that specific type of uh, training to deal with uh, different people in the community. Great. And this will be our last question before we wrap up. This is for you, Adam. Um, I've gotten this question a couple times through here. We, we get, we've probably gotten 60 or 70 questions, quite, quite a few tonight. Um, as an officer, have you ran into a backlash from community members or people out and about due to the police being in the media, things with Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, anything there uh, in our community that you've noticed or that you would like to speak to? Sure, I, I feel that our community is very supportive of, of law enforcement, and, and we appreciate that. It's um, Certainly there, there are, are people that aren't happy with uh, law enforcement in, in this community, and um, but for the most part, the, the majority that, that we, we talk with, we feel that they, they reach out and, and they are, are very supportive to us and for us. Um, how do you, as an officer or as you know, someone in leadership in the sheriff's office, we can't expect you to always get it right. Right. We, we how get how do you Absolutely. deal with that then? If you say, okay, you know, um, because also sometimes admitting guilt mm -hmm. is obviously you, you enter into a whole other area there too, or just that we've got this wrong. Sure. Admitting that nobody wants to admit that anymore because it, it can be used against you as a weapon. Sure. I, I think it's okay for uh, us to say that we're human. We make mistakes. Um, but we need to have a promise. We're going to try to make things right too. And we're going to uh, continue to educate ourselves and uh, look at different training aspects that we should be trying to do uh, at the Sheriff's Department. And, and again, and speaking for you a little bit, knowing you well enough, and I know that's why you're passionate about the little things. If sure. we do the little things right, mm -hmm. then oftentimes we don't end up in those big things that make headlines a lot of the times, you know? And, and I appreciate, uh, as a citizen here, that we have people in our local police that have that view, so. And I know, I'm just gonna make a comment here. I know these gentlemen well. I know a lot of folks in their positions. Um, and, and speaking for myself and, and everybody in the criminal justice system, I think one of our goals is when we do get it wrong, we learn from it, mm -hmm. okay? So that it doesn't happen again. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and again, approach, we will get some things wrong, right? We just do. Uh, we will at, a, at this church, we will as the PAC Center, we will, we will get things wrong, but where do we go from there? And I think that's just the most important thing. Um, so we always end uh, each conversation um, with uh, one question, but I, I want to add a different one um, as well. So two questions for each of you. Um, we'll start with you, Judge Freeman. Um, you, you've got an audience here. Uh, you've got people watching online. What's one thing you want people to know before, something you've been wanting to tell people or something that um, about maybe the drug court or about cr criminal justice in Laporte um, that they should know? You have an audience right now. What would you tell them? You want to clear up any misconceptions, any, um, any education point that maybe we didn't talk about? <laughs> it, Nate, it's Friday. It's... <laughs> I'm not yeah. taking that as an excuse. It's, no. it's eight. Um, boy. It's okay. I, I've I got another question. You want another question? Well, let's go with the other question first. Okay. Uh, so this is the question we do ask everyone. What brings you hope? What brings me hope? Yep. Oh. 
boy, every day I get out of bed, there's something that brings me hope. Um, usually it's the small things. Um, usually it's um, something that happens that surprises me. It's, a, it's an article I read. Uh, it's a statement from somebody that um, is a little unexpected. Um, people, I guess. Think things from people um, give me hope. If I think it's important, and, and maybe this is also leading into the question you, you, you previously asked. I want everybody to understand that um, in the criminal justice system, we deal with lots of kinds of people. As Adam said, some are bad. There's a reason they're bad, but some are bad. The majority make mistakes. The majority can be helped, um, can be transformed. It cannot happen without hope. And there are two schools of thought in this country. Lock them up, make things tougher. We know more than we used to about that concept. We know and we have learned you cannot incarcerate yourself out of the drug and opioid crisis in, in this country. Making things stiffer doesn't, doesn't work necessarily in a lot of areas. Having hope is absolutely critical to rehabilitating folks, those who can't be rehabilitated, hopefully working with their families, letting them know this isn't your fault, you're gonna move on. Um, so I, I would say that um, keeping a positive attitude, uh, if you don't have that, everything's gonna look bleak, nothing's gonna look right. So for folks in the criminal justice system wrapped up in it, them and their families, as well as all of us, please be hopeful. There's still a lot to be hopeful for. Amen. I'm bring me to the altar here. Okay. Um, Sergeant Hannon? Yes, sir. Same questions for you. Um, and you can start with either one. What brings you hope? Or you can start with maybe there's something, a misconception, or just something that you, you want the community to know here in LaPorte. Um, Obviously, I want them to know that um, we, as law enforcement officers, are here to serve you and protect you, and we want you to feel safe in your own home. And that, that uh, we are, uh, not only that, but we are also, uh, we're your neighbors, and um, we are, we're in this with you. And I think in a lot of ways, um, I, I like the, the community approach of things. We can't say this is a law enforcement issue or this is something that Nelson needs to figure out on his own. Um, we need to look at this as, let's do this together. And um, in a lot of ways, we as law enforcement are there to lead a charge on some things, but we need, uh, we, we need you to be there as well to have conversations with your children about making good decisions, about being involved in mentorship programs in the schools, uh, because all of those little things, we talked about little things already, all those little things are going to help us as a community overcome uh, a drug problem uh, and, and can help help us all get to the place where we want to try to be. Yeah, which is why I think these conversations are so important Absolutely. because we have to talk. Um, so what brings you hope? I've got hope in a lot of different aspects of my life. It's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, what brings me hope is when we have a new officer that is, has built that foundation for their training and they're eager to get out and make a positive impact on their community. 
Um, I have hope with, with my children that, that they will uh, get the education and, and uh, grow up and try to figure out the things that we keep messing up and, and get those answers so the things that we just can't get right. Um, and I have uh, hope in my faith. And it, it seems that, that when I have that the most is when I'm most in balance with and in tune with everything else. Amen. All right, Nelson, what about you? Anything that you would like the community to know? I think uh, one of the things that I, I'd like to share with everyone here and, and anyone that's listening is, you know, if you have a question, ask. Don't assume. Don't find the answer on the Internet or whatever. Ask someone that, that knows what they're talking about. In our community here in LaPorte County, people are very helpful. You know, you just have to ask the questions. If you're in court, go to the clerk's office. They're able to answer questions. Talk to an attorney. Even the judges are very approachable. You know, so if, if there's one thing that I, I could share with you all is that don't, don't be afraid to come walk up to someone and ask a question. Uh, from my experience in, in being here in LaPorte County and not being a native LaPorte person, it's it's a lot different in other places. People aren't so eager to help, you know. So that's that's one thing that uh, that is really nice about this community, is that people are are willing to answer questions. Elected officials will talk to you. Um, you just have to get out there and do it. Um, and then your what brings you hope? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, I couldn't remember the question. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Something that brings me hope is is events like this where we get together as a community. And we talk about issues that are happening instead of just sitting around and not doing anything about it. You know, it's, it's nice to be able to spend an evening like this and have this, these discussions and um, give good information. I've, I've learned a lot listening to, to Adam and, and Judge Friedman. And the fact that everyone, this room is almost filled, that's, that's really neat. And that gives me hope because of the fact that people are wanting to be involved they're wanting to come out and learn, and they want to share that information with others. So that is something that, that, that brings me hope, that we're not just uh, going around the, the hamster wheel, you know, not trying to deal with the problems. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, I think you guys, all three of you, bring me hope and bring us hope, and we're, we're, we're really grateful for you. Will you give our panel a round of applause, please? Well, that's it for tonight. Will you uh, thank uh, all of our volunteer staff and Joel Crane for cooking? <laughs> Food was delicious. Um, we will be back in October. Uh, be uh, checking our Facebook and stuff like that. We will announce uh, our next topic. And um, j just to kind of give you a, 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 a primer of what's going to happen over the next couple months, October will be our last uh, discussion over dinner for the year, but in November and December we're gonna have uh, uh, we're gonna still podcast. We're still gonna uh, we're gonna call those uh, discussion over dessert. So we'll still have a topic. You'll still be able to submit questions. We just won't have a big dinner here. Uh, we want to continue to cultivate and curate that content and things like that and put it out uh, to you so that we can continue to have that. But in November, obviously here at State Street, we have our Thanksgiving meal, we, that's a big thing for us, which you're all invited to. Um, and also in December, um, it's busy for me. Um, it's one of the two months uh, of the year I work. So um, <laughs> thank you for being here.
Thank you for being a part of these conversations. No two people in here are the same. We have different political persuasions. We have different values. We have different worldviews. But when we can break bread together at the same table and look each other in the eye, we're building the art of good neighboring. So thank you so, so much for being here. Thank you for podcasting and listening to us. Have a great night.